The horses are at the gate. And they're off! Welcome to Winning Ponies. With a weekend coming up, this is the spot to be for news, handicapping, and spotlights featuring the winners behind horse racing today. Now, here's your host, John Engelhart, racing's regular guy. All right, welcome back to Winning Ponies. John Engelhardt here, looking forward to a good show. Hope you all had a good weekend. I did. Uh, That doesn't mean if I owe you money, you should start ringing my phone because I already spent most of it. But uh, Pimlico was betty, betty good to me over the weekend, all because of money management. You read books about money management and how you should approach the races and sometimes know when you're beat and do what you do do well and go with the horse that you danced with. And that's what I did. I, you know, we, we talked last week with Matt Bernier and Tom Lamara about the Preakness and the many, many, many angles. And Matt Bernier and I both took a stance. We said, well, the horse to beat is War of Will. It was four to one at that time. And uh, I'll take a $12 payday, but even better, I'll, uh, a $10 payday. I'll take a $12.80 or $14.80 payday. He moved up to 16 to 1, paid fourteen twenty actually. And, uh, you know, as, as we discussed with both handicappers, the horses underneath all had reasons why they could jump up and run a big race. But War of Will... We all know what happened in the Kentucky Derby with this uh, near-tragic accident. And I told everybody, after the Risen Star, he's my derby horse, and he threw in the clunker at the Louisiana Derby. But, you know, he was sitting right there making a bold move in the derby when he almost clipped heels. But the important thing was he had shown that you could put a line through that Louisiana Derby. And uh, he was just sensational on Saturday. And it was so good, you know, the redemption. All the rumors were like, well, he wouldn't hit the board anyhow, you know, and things like that. Uh, so Mark Cassie has just been so gracious. And uh, the good news is... Uh, that uh, he says, you know, they only run the Belmont Stakes once a year, and we're eligible for it this year, so we're going to train up to it. I know a mile and a half is a lot to ask in three weeks, but, uh, you know, it might be one of those little asterisks in racing history when they talk about uh, triple crown winners uh, and that, uh, you know, bothered in the Kentucky Derby, won the next two jewels of the triple crown. He could have been a potential triple crown winner, which has happened to other horses uh, many over the years. Uh, some of them didn't win the Derby and won the next two. Uh, little Current comes to mind to me the most, uh, being a Derby Dan horse. And uh, so anyhow, uh, I'm going to discuss uh, this race uh, with our, our second guest, who is none other than Ralph Sirocco. Uh You may know Ralph if you're, uh, you can go online and listen to him, or for you folks out there in Vegas land, uh, Race Day Las Vegas is the show uh, that he hosts. And um, so I'm going to talk to, to Ralph a little bit uh, about the Preakness and about what he saw in the Kentucky Derby. And I also want to talk to Ralph about sports betting you remember the days when the only place you could go to lay off bets on basketball baseball hockey you name it 
It was in Las Vegas. Then New Jersey got it, and now it's starting to spread uh, like a slow wildfire across the United States. Uh, Even states like Ohio are probably going to be on board within the year uh, to take on sports betting. Of course, most of the states already have racinos and casinos in places. So they have places that have been monitored by the state to collect their tax money. They know that they're on the up and up and they're going to get paid. And let's face it, the state legislatures have seen how much money racinos and casinos have brought into their coffers. And, uh, you know, why let the the neighbor next door uh, get all the profits? Because that's what's going to happen. It's going to pop up on states around the country. And one's going to look to the other and tell their governor, hey, governor, uh, they're collecting an extra, you know, $80 million in taxes because of the sports betting thing. Uh, We need to take a hard look at it. So I want to see how that is affecting Las Vegas. Because remember, they were the only game in town for the longest time. And I've also heard that some of the bigger race book managers, I'm sure Ralph will correct me on this if I'm wrong, have uh, left Vegas and, and gone uh, initially to New Jersey. And I'm sure that they will be wooed by some of the other places that have sports betting to coordinate uh, their their betting interests and the way that a uh, – betting shop should be run at a racetrack or at a casino. So it'll be very interesting to see if it's changed the landscape or if anything different has happened out there in Las Vegas. And so uh, Ralph Sirocco, who's been on this show uh, quite a few times over the years, uh, is going to join us. Also, uh, Ralph uh, used to call races on the East Coast. He was the track announcer at Garden State back in the day. And we're not going to Garden State, but we are going to the fresh meat at Monmouth Park, where I think they're running 13 or 14 races on Saturday. Uh, the 11th is the Monmouth. It's a grade two, $200,000. And the door is pretty much open here. There's a lot of horses with class, but some that are just coming in off layoffs. Uh, you've got solid closers. I haven't found too much speed in this race, so that might not uh, benefit those solid closers. I think market off might be the, the one to catch, but hey, We'll get Ralph's input on that. But So first, we're going to start in Jersey uh, with uh, the Monmouth. That is, by the way, a mile and an eighth on the turf. Uh, then we're going to go out closer to where Ralph lives now, which is in Las Vegas. And he may pay a little more attention to the races at Santa Anita. And we've got the mile and a quarter Charles Whittingham. That's a grade two, 200,000 on the grass. And... Uh, Right after that is another grade two, 200,000 in the triple bend stakes. So uh, those are the races. Sharpen your pens and take down the picks. Uh, We did pretty good last week with our guest handicappers. Now, our first guest is going to be Jennifer Kelly. And this book is uh, the ink was still wet when I got it. And uh, it is Sir Barton and the making of the Triple Crown. Of course, Sir Barton, the first Triple Crown winner before anybody really knew there was one. Uh, it's a very interesting story about the people involved in his life and, and his career. And, of course, uh, sometimes when you say Sir Barton before the Triple Crown gets into people's mind, they go, wasn't that horse that had the match race with Man of War? Yes, it was. And uh, we're going to talk to uh, Jennifer Kelly about that and about why 
a certain track and Canada was picked. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the strange ending uh, to his stud career. So those were our two guests, and that kind of is the lay of the land, uh, how we like to see that the show go. Uh, but again, uh, let's get back to uh, some of the many races we looked at last week, because don't forget, they had racing at Pimlico on Friday and Saturday with a slew of graded stakes races each day. Of course, uh, the uh, we'll, we'll get to Saturday's races after we get to Friday's. Uh, the first big race on Friday, the legendary Pimlico Special. Remember when Seabiscuit uh, ran in that race? Uh, it was uh, well featured in the movie. And uh, this year, the winner was tenfold. A horse that was 12th at the half-mile pole. Ricardo Santana slipped through along the rail, split foes, and a great three-horse finish. Got the nod. This is a son of Curlin, trained by Steve Asmussen. I swear, 80% of the Curlin foals are trained by Steve Asmussen. So, uh, nonetheless, wins uh, the Pimlico Special. Uh, over the favorite, uh, you're to blame that finished uh, just a neck in front of uh, Cordmaker, who was Tom Lamar's top pick because he's kind of a hometown horse, raced pretty much exclusively in, in the Maryland area. Uh, so congratulations to the Connections of Tenfold, a now four-year-old cult. All right, then we moved on to the Black-Eyed Susan. It's Maryland's version of the uh, Oaks, one say. This is for three-year-old fillies. And um, the winner in there was Point of Honor. A point of Honor got up by another nice finish. It got up by a half after rallying. This is a daughter of curling that's not trained by, by Steve Asmussen. Uh, so... Uh, Gets the job done with Javier Castellano in the saddle. In the third spot was Yulali, I'm going to say. It's 7-1. to one. Uh, Was on the rail and kind of flattened out a little bit. And in the fourth spot, uh, in the third spot, rather, was Cookie Dough. So that was uh, the top races on Friday. Uh, let's go. We'll try to lead up to the Preakness Stakes, as time allows. And uh, the Gallarette. A grade three, 150,000 on, on the turf. And the winner in here was Mitchell Road, wire to wire. Trainer Bill Mott having a pretty good season, I must say. And uh, uh, got the job done, wire to wire. Joel Rosario was in the saddle. When you're looking at turf races, you always look at Kitten Joys. Well, you better always look at English Channels. In the second spot, The Way I Am, the French bread. And uh, finishing third was Viva Vegas. And uh, then uh, moving up to the 11th race, the winner was number one, Lexingtonian Upset Time with Jose Ortiz in the saddle. Another three-horse finish. $36 to win a son of Spitestown. Just last over Gladiator King up from Gulfstream Park, who had the lead, got caught. Uh, he was 8-1. to one. And in the third spot was Admiral Lynch. Moving right along, we go to race number 12, 
the Dixie, and the Dixie was won. Come on, John, get your PPs out. Uh, by the 12 horse, who was one of my best bets of the day, Catholic boy. I went all in on the double uh, two war of will, and Catholic boy just got the job done. Uh, very impressive. First start of the season, trained by Jonathan Thomas. This horse has now won over $2 million, I believe. If not, he's just under it. Four-year-old Ridgling son of more than ready. So Catholic boy making all the fish eaters out there very happy. And, uh, of course, a long shot number three, admission office. Even though it was a good buzz on that horse, uh, went off at, at decent odds. And finishing third was just Howard, a horse I threw in my try. I just like the blinkers off and the fact that he was undefeated at Pimlico and did pull down the try. A $2 try paid $92.20. And let's just say I had a little more than 2 bucks on that try. Good old Catholic boy myself. And, of course, we'll be talking about the race later. What an effort by War of Will with Tyler Gaffleone. Mark Cassie Train wins the second jewel of the Triple Crown. Uh, just a, a fantastic effort. And uh, so we'll be, again, talking more about this race. And before we go to Ralph Sirocco to talk about these races, we want to talk to somebody that's turned into quite the historian, I must say, and that's Jennifer Kelly, who just penned this book on Sir Barton and the making of the Triple Crown. So with no further ado, we'll take a little bit of a break. I'm John Engelhart. You're listening to Winning Ponies. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with winningponies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let winningponies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full field with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Engelhart. Got a tip for us? Need a tip from us? If you want to talk with John or his guests, the phone lines are now open toll-free at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com. Now, back to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. 
with no further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Jennifer S. Kelly, uh, who fell in love uh well, believe it or not, I read these books, Walter Fraley's Black Stallion series as a child. Now, mm-hmm. she watched Winning Colors beat the boys in the 1980 Kentucky Derby, probably bouncing on her daddy's knee in the couch while no. I was I, I, I was on the finish line shooting the 1988 Kentucky Derby uh, and Winning Colors. Uh, turned out to be a great, great mare, but... Boy, I'll tell you what, I, I know you're a lifelong reader, and uh, you're currently a writer, but boy, you have really uh, <laughs> turned into an amazing uh, historian and, and a researcher. And, and by the way, folks out there, this is a book I like for one reason, as I always tell you, I like books that have a lot of photos. And, uh, <laughs> well, just so you know, I, I am on the side an equine photographer, and I love. Right. I have collections of uh, of many, and I go around a lot of the old farms to the graveyards and such, and uh, I just love old photos. And you've got a great collection in here. I think some that were kind of hard to find that maybe some people hadn't seen before. Yeah, I've got three never before published photos in there that I was able to procure from a family member of the Jones brothers who owned Sir Barton when he was at Stud at Audley Farm in Virginia. And then I have one more that uh, came from the Casper Sun-Times, I believe. That was a photo of Sir Barton in his final years when he was on a ranch in Wyoming. And those were photos I haven't seen very often. The ones that were from Audley, I'd never seen before. And I've got one of them framed in my office now. It's it's a beautiful photo. But the rest of them came from the Keeneland Library. So if you ever need, you know, a good photographs of old-timey horses dating back to who knows when, they've got the probably the best selection of anyone in the world. Absolutely. I'm very familiar with it and a frequent visitor. I went to see Milton uh, Toby yes. speak on Shergar there not long ago. And I believe that uh, his uh, his book was uh, also uh, uh, published uh, by by your publisher, too, which I think is the Kentucky Press. Um, yes. Really good writer and a great guy. you got to hear his life yes. story, let alone the books he's written. But um, oh. So first of all, I want to know why... Why Sir Barton? Because quite frankly, why not Sir Barton now that I've had a chance to learn more about him? But he is kind of one of the greatest lost horses. In fact, we're just talking about Milton Toby. He wrote that book, Noor. He was another mm-hmm. horse because of Seabiscuit that just kind of mm-hmm. got lost because everybody was looking at Seabiscuit. And back in the era of Sir Barton, everybody was looking at Man of War. Yeah, it's just one of those things. It's, uh, it's like... Roger Federer and Stan Wawrinka. You know who Roger Federer is, but do you know that there's another great tennis player that came out of Switzerland about the same time? It's just, it just happens. When you're concurrent with a superstar, it's, it's easy to get lost. And that's one of the biggest motivations behind the book was not just exploring his story in depth, but really you know, doing my best to resurrect his reputation after 100 years because for so long he was just kind of like a footnote, like trivia. And I thought, there's got to be more to this than, you know, the little bit that I know and the little bit that I would see in any of the books that I have on the Triple Crowns. Like, there's there's so much more to this story. And so, you know, with all the hubris of any writer <laughs> thinking that you're the right one to tell the story, I just took up the mantle and did it. What was the wow moment that made you say, this horse needs to have a book written about him? Uh... 
wow moment. I think it was, you know, there was a 100th anniversary coming up, and the more I delved into it, the more that the the narrative that I knew, and I talked about this in my Keeneland lecture, the narrative that I knew as someone who'd grown up in horse racing and had read so much about it just wasn't true. And, you know, every time I would, you know, see another discussion of a race that he ran in and just, you know, there's a few more and more layers of, you know, what really happened. And like, especially when it came to, you know, talk about his personality, talking about his career and the races he ran and just it's so much more complex and so much more to the story than what we've all been given and you know that's by necessity when you have a book about triple crown winners and you've got you know now 13 of them you don't have space to delve into you know the the nitty-gritty of a story so I wanted to to do that for the people who are you know currently into horse racing, and you know, especially those who have been brought in by American Pharaoh and Justify. It's like here, let's look at why we get so excited about you know the Triple Crown every year. Why is American Pharaoh and Justify such a big deal? So that was really you know what motivated me was each little nugget of something that contradicted what I already knew just drew me in further and further. Well, now, before we get on to the great match race with Man of War and the odd mm-hmm. track that was selected to have it <laughs> competed there, um, just make it clear for our, our listeners that he won the Triple Crown before he knew there was a Triple Crown. Well, in the year the year before, in 1918, the first horse to ever run in the Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont was War Cloud. And what had happened is, you know, in this, like, last couple of years of World War One, you could see this shift in how people were thinking about sports and, you know, pursuit of money. And because, you know, we're coming out of a war and things are really difficult and really tough, the Spanish influenza outbreak and stuff like that, a racetracks were trying to build their audience. And to do that, they would offer bigger and bigger purses. And what that would do is that would draw in the high-class horses. And so you get a war cloud who is, you know, an import from Great Britain who went to the Derby and was, was the favorite. If not the favorite, he was second choice. He finished fourth, sixth, Terminator. Went to the Preakness that year. The Preakness had bumped up its uh, purse to 15000 which doesn't sound like a lot now, but in those days, it was quite a bit of money. And, he, you know, they had so many horses that wanted to run in the Preakness that year. They actually ran it in two divisions. He, run, he won one of them. And then he followed that up with a run in the Withers and a run in the Belmont where he came in second. And so, you know, you, people see the money and they see the prestige that comes from, you know, trying this. And so the following year, you know, Sir Martin is there and he runs in the Derby. Even though he's a maiden, he earned his spot. And he won the Derby, and he won a $25,000 purse, goes to Pimlico, runs in the Preakness, wins the Preakness, wins another $25,000 purse. You know, suddenly in two races, he's earned $50,000. And then by a fluke, an absolute fluke, he ends up in the the Belmont, which only had a $10,000 purse. But by the time he's won all three of these races, he's won upwards of $60,000. And people really, you know, stood up and took notice of this. And so within about five years, you start seeing people referring to these three races as our triple crown. It only takes about five years for people to kind of see that this is something that's of value. And then by the time you've got Gallant Fox and then Omaha, 
winning. You can see that this concept of these are new American classics and these are going to be, you know, something that everyone's going to be trying to, to achieve. You really see that start to take hold. Okay, I, I know, God, we, I could have you on for the whole rest of the show, but uh, Ralph <laughs> would get mad at me if I did. Yeah, but two, th- two things I want to touch on is, let, let's face it, it was one of the greatest match races in racing history, Man of War against Sir Barton, but the mm-hmm. race was run at Kenilworth, and, uh, you know, which I think probably even back then, I mean, it left me scratching my head because I knew there were much bigger tracks even back in those days. A, a track like Latonia in northern Kentucky was a very well-respected mm-hmm. track. You know, it could have been run one of the New York tracks. Uh, why Kenilworth before we move on to uh, the, the, the strange way he ended his career? Well, it's, it goes back to any time you talk about horse racing, you talk about relationships. And, you know, Matt Wynn was the man that we know of as Mr. Derby. He's the one that made the Kentucky Derby, the, you know, the thing to do. And not only was he a promoter working at Churchill, but he was also working for Latonia and Laurel and places like that. And he actually started approaching uh, Commander Ross and Samuel Riddle during the Saratoga meet to get them to bring a match race to, you know, any of the tracks, Laurel, Latonia, Churchill, wherever. And he offered, you know, a $25,000 purse. And then somebody else come in and offer 30 and then 50 and then 75 Well, A.M. Um, Orpin, who ran Kenilworth Park, had actually, he had owned more than one racetrack and had been a long-term gambling and betting person in Ontario. So prior to all this, in like the very early 1910s, H.G. Um, Bedwell had trained for Orpin. And then Orpin would have known Commander Ross because Commander Ross ran some of his horses at Kenilworth in its very early days. So when everyone's approaching Commander Ross and saying, Riddle, hey, let's do a match race. Well, because Orpin had this existing relationship with Commander Ross and with H.G. Bedwell, they were able to influence and basically Orpin just out, you know, out and out beat uh, Matt Wynn to the punch. Because literally the same day that they signed the paperwork on the match race, um, Matt Wynn was on a train to Havre de Gras to talk to Commander Ross and Samuel Riddle and offer the same amount of money. And he was even willing to go up to $100,000. But because Orpin had this existing relationship and he, you know, he talked faster. As I said in the book, he talked faster than everybody else. Um, that's how it ended up at Kenilworth Park of all places which was not a grand racetrack by any stretch. It was a very, you know, basic racetrack. It was meant to be for the average person. It was not meant to be for the elite. It didn't have a clubhouse. It didn't have any special seating for, uh, for owners or anything like that. It was just meant to be, you know, a racetrack for the people. And that's why Orpin wanted to bring it to Kenilworth. Okay, well, my producer's <laughs> telling me I'm in the final furlong, but I've got to get okay. this in. Um, Sir Barton <laughs> came from a sire line that never developed into the sire of sires, and neither right. did Sir Barton. No, I think it's funny that he did throw a stakes winner by the name of Donna Barton. <laughs> she, she's a and friend of mine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. uh, but, but anyhow, he didn't make it at stud. And tell our listeners uh, quickly, if you can, what his final job was. Well, he stood at Oddly for about a decade. So Oddly's in Berryville, Virginia, outside of D.C. And then um, in about the late 1932, um, 
the Jones brothers, the Montford had died, so BB was left to run the operation, and they had basically just given up on Sir Barton as a sire, and they decided to instead donate him to the remount service, which helped provide cavalry mounts for the military. So he was, you know, put into the remount service. He was sent out west, ended up in Wyoming serving, you know, the average person. Any any regular Joe wanted to bring a mare to have her covered by Sir Barton would only pay about 5 or $10 for the privilege of doing it. And then, then those horses were able to be cycled into the cavalry if the military desired it. Wow. Wow. Very interesting. And there's so much more to learn. This is not a uh, you know a, a book for dummies. This is very uh, well researched. It's a great Thank history, you. but you know it's very readable. And like I said, there's some great historic photos in there. Uh, Jennifer Kelly is, is the author. Now you can also uh, get on with her uh, on Twitter yes. uh, at yes. the Sir Barton, and right. uh, she also uh, has a blog. Uh, the Sir Barton right. and I'm guessing <laughs> that this book that's put out by the uh, University Press of Kentucky is available at Barnes and Noble and all the usable suspects, Amazon, etc. Yeah, I always say it's at your favorite bookseller, or you can order it from the University of Kentucky Press or University Press of Kentucky directly if you like. So, you awesome. know, if you can walk to your bookstore and you find it, send me a picture. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Jennifer, thanks a million for being on with us tonight. Wishing nothing but the best with uh, this Thank book you, and your two boys. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. We've been talking with Jennifer Kelly. Going to take a quick break. and we come back, we're going to Las Vegas with Ralph Sirocco. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com And they're off! What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with WinningPonies.com, the home of the easy win form. The most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry. Let WinningPonies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Engelhart. Got a tip for us? Need a tip from us? If you want to talk with John or his guests, the phone lines are now open toll-free at 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or you can send an email to show at winningponies.com. Now, back to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. All right, and with me, the world of racing is peppered with uh, great personalities and character, and we have a character on the phone with us right now, and one, Ralph Sirocco. Ralph, how have you been? Uh, I don't know. You just pulled me out of my jacuzzi. I was doing some Heineken lights and doing it, man. I came up here to do this show with you, so uh, I hope I get a winner out of you. Uh, don't guilt me, man. Don't guilt me. Well, uh, so life can't be too bad. You answered that question. And, uh, so basically, uh, I understand now you, you and, uh, Rich Ng, who I've had on a couple times recently, um, you still partner up sometime and do work together out there in Vegas, right? Yeah, we do. You know, you remember we were all together uh, at Turfway Park at one time, you and me and Richie doing the thing over there and, and, uh, moved on and, I uh, came to Las Vegas because I, um, I was tired of running around the country watching the races and doing the races, so I figured I'd go to a place where the, all the races came to me, and that was here, and then Richie followed me. Yeah, and he, uh, he does a gig with me on uh, my radio show here. Now, uh, tell our listeners about your radio show. Um, is it uh, on the air? I'm guessing, of course, it's online. Uh, mm-hmm. what's, what's, the, what's the format? Uh, just talking racing as it uh, applies to any individual who's going to the races on a national basis every day, because that's what we do when we come into the books. We've got all these signals out there, and a lot of uh, racing shows across the country do uh, racing shows that apply to their particular jurisdiction or circuit. We do it on a national basis. Well, Ralph, it's good to hear your voice again. You haven't lost your pipes. Uh, uh, tell me about your racing days and when you hung up your microphone. Well, uh, you know, if you look at my resume, it looks like I can't keep a job. <laughs> the life of a track announcer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, radio TV uh, announcing, and then I started to do this radio show about, uh, it's going on three decades now. We do it, uh, you know, uh, 52 weeks a year, and, um, uh, you know, we're still doing it, and it's still going strong, and, and Vegas is a really neat place to live. Well, you know, like I said, you've got you've got a, a, a great voice and, of course, great knowledge and experience in the way of racing, but you've also been in Vegas for quite a while now. And before we – I'm going to get your view on the Derby and the Preakness. Before we huh? do that, though, uh, you know, big subjects out here in the Midwest – are the fact that the states are really embracing sports betting. Now, a lot of them don't have it yet. It's in the works, but we know that it's already in, you know, your old stomping grounds, Jersey and Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm just wondering, how is this proliferation of sports betting going to affect the landscape of uh, Vegas and the fact that Vegas used to have a lock on it, and now it looks like it's practically going to go nationwide. Well, you know, John, a couple of things. One, in case you haven't noticed, people have been betting on sports in, in all parts of the country for eons. So that's nothing new. Now they can just do it legally. And uh, the fact is that 
it, it applies the same way when everybody thought, well, now these casinos are going into these other states through Indian reservations, etc., and, and Las Vegas is going to be a ghost town. All it did was help us out, and the sports betting is the same way. We've had a record year in football, in the NCAA March Madness, now going on with our hockey team, etc. People are betting more money now than they ever did because all of the people out there who knew somebody who made a bet in your particular town or whatever with the you know the Chinese laundry or whatever, <laughs> um, and they always were they always were intrigued that man if it was just legal I'd bet ten or twenty bucks on the game etc. But they didn't want to break the law so to speak. Now they're betting, they're betting in local places. All right. Well, heard a little bit of a cut out there. Let me check with my producer and uh, make sure that uh, we didn't uh, lose lose them. Are we are we good to go? If you're going to have to call back, I can fill some space. Just let me know in my ear. All right. Well, anyhow, we will get back to uh, Ralph Sirocco. But it, it does make sense. It's like all of a sudden, just because there is legalized betting, it's not like oh. I think I'll do it. I mean, I'm not going to say I've ever done it. I'm not going to not say it. Uh, but let's face it, folks. If you really wanted to, you could always pretty much get, you know, a parlay card going. Uh, remember, they would pass them out every Thursday. I'd bring them home. My father would fill them out, and there was a guy you gave them to. And uh, so, it, you know, it, it's not like all of a sudden because it's legal, this is something new to people that wanted to get a bet down. I mean, obviously – uh, you could, and we always were able to, certainly in my neighborhood, and I'm guessing just about every other you know neighborhood, uh, depending on where you live, there was somebody that was willing to book your bet on a game. So it's not like all of a sudden just because it's legal, uh, people are going to stop going to Vegas. And I think the other thing about Vegas is, you know, it's a destination point. I mean, if you've ever been out there, it's fantastic. All you have to do is open your ears and just sit in one spot and listen to the different languages that go by. And, uh, I mean, you might hear, you know, eight different languages in eight different minutes because people from all over the world like to go to Vegas. The glamour and, of course, because – so many people are retiring there, and we're having different shows uh, that are happening, uh, you know, the residential thing. And, uh, you know, so people are just heading there because they know not only can they, you know, take their favorite game of chance with them, but there is the sports betting. But it is just a marvelous place, and the food's great, and and uh, it, it looks like uh, I've, I've got my man back on the line. Sorry, I, did you drop your phone in your jacuzzi? <laughs> well, my, my, my producer took I care ha- of I have no idea what happened. I know that we're having storms here right now uh, in certain areas, and sometimes when that happens, but the phone just went dead. I just thought maybe you guys, uh, you know, hung up on me or something, but... Yeah, yeah, um, you, you know, Ralph's just not that interesting. We're going to find a new guest, and we're going on. No, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're fantastic. But, but anyway, so when we were talking about the fact that, you know, it's just uh, it, the the sports betting in the country is just a feeder to us. We're, we're, we're doing fine, and uh, there's uh, more action now than there has ever been, and I think that... Uh, 
politicians and everybody out there in America now find out how big sports betting is and how much it was in the closet before. I, I just wonder how it's going to hurt, uh, you, you, you know, Tommy Ninefingers that used to book all the bets over in Florence, Kentucky, um, nah. because nah, they, people are be driving it'll over it'll it'll way, you know, to get their action, and hopefully, uh, in another year or so. I mean, it, it's definitely going to have an impact on, shall I say, people that were taking illegal wagers, uh, because now there's a place you can do it that could be pleasant. You have dinner, you can watch a whole football game, you can do a parlay to a hockey and a soccer match, or whatever you want. But like I said, in the old days, it's not like you couldn't find a place to lay off a bet anyhow. Well, the thing is, uh, you know, that the illegal bookmakers will always have a place because they take stuff on credit. And and most of the uh, places that, uh, you know, the legal places, uh, you've got to have the cash up front. That's number one. And uh, secondly, uh, you know, that uh, believe me, there's plenty of action to go around for everybody. There's not going to be a problem anywhere. Here's where the problem's going to come in. When you have local jurisdictions like New Jersey instead of Las Vegas, where you've got the nucleus of the people that are there, especially in South Jersey, betting on uh, the teams like the Philadelphia Eagles and, and their hockey game, etc., you're going to get skewed lines because they're going to be overloaded on one side because the fans are going to be betting it. And that will create different lines from Las Vegas because here we, we get it funneled in from all places, Okay. We have the tourists that come in every week that, that bet here as well from all over the country. So we have a chance to offset one against the other. There, they're going to be so overloaded that they're going to have to have a skewed uh, the point spreads. And that's going to create a pocket for professional gamblers to be searching around the country. So uh-huh. it's still got a lot of growing pains. It's got a lot of growing pains. And remember one thing, uh, John, that you know everybody looks at all these billions of dollars that's being handled. But sports betting, a good sports bet place, a good place that has good bookmakers, are working on anywhere from a 3 to 5% margin. They make that money because of the volume, but they don't make that money on the margin. So uh, you get, And that's why uh, the, a lot of these places are tapping into the bookmakers, the, the big bookmakers that were here, because they know that. So there's going to be growing pains, but there's plenty of money to go around. Well, that's good. I hope I hope we make everybody happy. Well, um, all right. Uh, l- let me get to the first two jewels of the Triple Crown. Uh, uh-huh. What was your read on the Kentucky Derby? To capsulize mine was right message, wrong delivery. I think you're absolutely right. I couldn't put it any better. Uh, rules of racing or rules of racing was the third race at Cahokia or the Kentucky Derby. Unfortunately, the Kentucky Derby has got more... Um, viewers and and there's more scrutiny on it but uh, he, he they broke the rules the rules of racing the way it's uh, laid out in in that jurisdiction and so he had to be disqualified whether you blame the jockey or not that's when you go in the room the next day in the film room and you make your case but when when uh, when an infraction happens you have to disqualify because of the infraction not because of the intent not because of the horse did it and the jockey didn't or the jockey did it and the horse didn't it's an infraction and and you got to you got to make the the uh, the, uh, the the call, uh, but the the message the way they they delivered this was like, wow, they got an F for that. Yeah, and you know I was at Churchill, and you could hear the murmurs, and uh, you know I might have 
friend of mine that's way up in the Jockeys Guild, and I said, Jeff, what do you think? He says, it's not the decision. They're just deciding where they're going to put the horse. And uh, But the thing is, when you do that, first of all, nobody knew Johnny Court claim foul. And mm-hmm. why didn't they? Exactly. Since, since there was obviously, if 22 minutes go by, there's an inquiry into the race. Why didn't they just flip that switch and put up inquiry? I think it would have made a lot of people's blood pressure gone down. John, I mean, what do you got? The three blind mice up there? Everybody <laughs> no, in the world don't. saw the infraction. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody I, I know saw a lot the of infraction. people in that room, and they're very experienced. I just don't know why they didn't do it, but I'll leave it at well, that. Well, I'll tell you why they didn't do it because it was the Kentucky Derby. It was national. It was you know a national race. The thing is, people have to understand that the stewards should post an inquiry sign every time they think that they want to inquire in the race. That's what the that's what the word means. We're inquiring into the race. Doesn't mean we're going to have a disqualification or anything else. Right. But you could see that you had to inquire into what happened in the race by what happened in the race, simply put. Hey, well, I, I, I can't add anything to that. You're absolutely right. We're talking with Ralph Sirocco from Race Day Las Vegas. Now, Ralph, let's move on to the, the, to the Pimlico. I had a marvelous day on Saturday. I loved War of Will uh, since his races in Louisiana. I was scared the heck out of me with the Louisiana Derby, but when his training up to the Kentucky Derby was great. Thank God they didn't clip heels. That would have been probably the biggest no. tragedy. Uh, the way our sport is being uh, you know, looked at with a jaundiced eye right now, you know, forget everything is being said today. Uh, hell, they would, uh-huh. they would have just shut us down. <laughs> and so thank God, let's be blessed that that didn't happen. But I, I do think War Will's one of the best three-year-olds we've seen. I've talked to a lot of people go, ah, this is a blah, blah crop. I, and I always tell them, hey, well, let's wait and see. And, and I'm glad that Cassie's got the sportsmanship to say, you know, they only run the Belmont Stakes one a year, once a year. My horse is definitely eligible for it. He's won one jewel. We're going to go to the Belmont. Whether or not he can get a mile and a half in three weeks, I don't know. But I'm going to go. And, and I like well, look, that. What, what, what was your read on the Pimlico? Look, um, you and I know Mark Cassie from years ago when he was training in, in Kentucky, etc. The guy's a class act and he's a good trainer. That's number one. Secondly, um, War of Will had a big excuse in the Louisiana Derby because, you know, his behind end went out from under him. Oh, and uh, if they say it's if they say it's a mediocre crop, all right. We're not talking about you know putting him up against Secretary. What we're saying is he's the best of the three year olds right now, and I think he proved it. Okay, so here's the thing: I'd like to see him run against Maximum Security again, maybe even Country House. Who knows? I had Owendale, and I thought Owendale, uh, you know, uh, cost me a lot of money by not getting up for second because he took the uh, you know the the scenic route and uh, Rosario found room on the rail with the horse that finished second by a whisker. But uh, I, I don't, I don't see how you can knock war. Well, look, he, he disposed of horses in the rebel and uh, I'm sorry, in the uh, LeCompte and in the, uh, the, uh, the race before that, what was the name of it? Uh, the the risen star. The first one. And the risen oh. star. And he had an excuse in Louisiana Derby. So, uh, you know, this is the crop of three-year-olds we got, and, and, and you know, we'll, uh, you, like you said, let's wait until the end. 
And we still haven't seen the upside of Omaha Beach. You know, he might come back and win the Travers, the Haskell, and the Bre- – we don't know. You know, he sure looks right. like the horse to beat, you know, just a couple of days well, before the Derby. So l- l- let's let's wait and see, but I'm, I'm glad that Cassie's taken the, the, the sportsmanship route of war well. Now, one more thing. We might not even get to any of the races, but what do you think but, about the $5 million challenge put up by the owner – of maximum security against any horse that was disqualified in the Derby. John, these guys are billionaires with a B. That that money, that's change that falls out of their pocket. That's their bar tap at the end of the night. So <laughs> I, I, I see it as a, a very great, uh, good sportsman-like gesture. But you don't need to. It doesn't matter whether it's $5 million, $10 million, $20 million. All they got to do is run on the same racetrack on the same day. They could do it in the Travers. They could do it in the Haskell. They don't, have, they don't have to put up anything. Just How about entering your horse in the race? If it was such a big deal, why didn't you enter them in the Preakness? There was, a, there was, there was the format. There was, where's, there was the vehicle. Uh, putting up all that money doesn't say he's any better. You know what I'm saying? There are plenty yeah. of races traditionally out there that have history in, in, in America that they can run in and throw it down on the racetrack uh, in, in, the, in the traditional way. Take the five million and donate it to the um, the fund uh, to, to retired horses or something. Yeah, and the other thing is what I thought was interesting. He says any track, any distance, any surface. What if one of those four horses turns out to be an exceptional sprinter or turf horse, which you know we don't know, or or excels at a mile and a half at the Belmont and says, okay. <laughs> You know, what, well, here, here's where I'll meet you, and here's my distance. I, I just thought it was really, there was a lot of downside for maximum security by giving those horses that choice instead of saying, yeah. I'll bet you head-to-head in the Travers, or, you know, I'm just picking a race, you know, and we'll have a side bet of $5 million, and like you said, the money will go to the PDJF or something. Yeah, and let me tell you something. Mr. West is a class act. He has a dedication to the game. He's put a lot of money in the game. He has a lot of passion for the game, and I think... He was, uh, it was more or less uh, the way he felt about the way things happen that, you know, prompted and predicated that. But, you know, it'll, it'll get settled on the racetrack somewhere, hopefully. I, I, I sure hope. And again, I'm, I'm waiting for the resurgence of, of Omaha Beach. Well, I, I've kind of, I've, I've painted ourselves in a quarter for some of the, uh, the, the races that we wanted to look at today. Uh, what was your favorite race of the ones we were looking at? The Triple Bend, the Whittingham, or the Monmouth? All right, listen, Monmouth Park, I like synchrony, and for a long shot, put Mott's horse in there, Micros Glen, okay? That's wow, that great, one. great minds think alike, Ralph. You know, All right, now we, get, now, now, now we get to the triple bend. Triple bend, I like law-abiding citizen, because I think American Anthem and Sistron might do a meltdown in that one. So you got that going for you. And in the, uh, the uh, last of the three races, the one at Santa Anita, the uh, Charlie Whittingham, I believe it is, in the Charlie Whittingham, I got to go for uh, Marquis Water. I think he's the now horse. I think he'll pick him up. Morris Code and Prime Attraction are horses I could put underneath. And uh, as far as Ashley Love Sugar, eight-year-old gelding, big heart, but I think, uh, I think he's getting a little bit, uh, let's put it this way, he might need a little glucosamine like we do. <laughs> all right well good hey listen all right well we, we, we sped through that which is just fine looks like i've, I've still got uh, two minutes left um let me bring ralph Sirocco into the great 
LASIX debate. I'm sure that's why all these horses are breaking down is because they're on LASIX. <laughs> what a joke. Uh, what is your opinion? LASIX is a diuretic. People use diuretics, my goodness, for their blood pressure. That's not it. The problem is some people think that LASIX is uh, screens or hides other type of uh, drugs that are illegal. I think they got to get a handle on the drug thing. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I hope they do because this is a beautiful sport and all that stuff about, you know, that thing that happened on real sports the other night and all this other stuff, you're talking about a small sliver, a nucleus of nefarious people that you can find in every industry and every walk of life, because that's just the way life is. But you take the entire scope, the entire terrain with all the people with big money, small guys, cab drivers, etc. it doesn't matter, who have a love for this sport and a love for that animal, and it's a non-factor. It, it really is. And, I mean, it, I just think it's a knee-jerk reaction uh, over the breakdowns and almost maybe, like, being able to, like, cover it up, like, well, this is why all the horses are breaking down on my track. It's not because of our surface or that we haven't cared for it. It's all these yeah. drugs, and we got to get rid of probably the most mildest of all Lasix, which you know, all of a sudden, all these other tracks because they want to, you know, have the whole feel good thing for PETA are jumping mm -hmm. on board. And I'm thinking that's going to benefit, heck, uh, you know, I, I can only, my example is tracks in Ohio that allow Lasix. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, if I can't race in Kentucky on this stuff, I'm going across the river, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm talking about other states, you know, I'm just using them as an example. It could be other states too that are still going to allow it. Um, Absolutely. It, Listen, you remember 19, was it 1968 when uh, Dancer's Image won the Kentucky Derby three days later, he was disqualified because he yep. had butazolidin in the system. Butazolidin is like an aspirin. And now exactly. it's, it's, it commonly, it's commonly administered. Right. And, and, know, and so. why, why do we laud the great uh, trainers and, 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 and racehorses um, of, of Europe that race on <clears throat> hay, oats, and water, and as soon as they come over here for the Breeders' Cup, they go on Lasix? Absolutely. Can't get it fast enough. <laughs> Well, Ralph Sirocco, uh, Race Day Las Vegas. Uh, for our listeners, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, uh, obviously, it's not my landline phone. <laughs> that, that thing don't work anymore. And I got to tell you, with all the robocalls that I've been getting on my cell phones and my landline phone, I don't never answer any phones anymore. You know, this is getting ridiculous. So uh, you can go to our website. RacedayLasVegas.com. We have we have an air, area there where you can uh, leave comments and, and and you know emails etc. Oh well, fantastic, Ralph. It's good good reuniting with you. Say hi to Rich Eng when you see him, uh, probably in a day or so. And I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. And so you can leave me alone, pop another Heineken, and jump back in the jacuzzi. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Mr. Engelhardt, if you ever make your way to this Sin City here. I got a cold beer and a hot uh, jacuzzi for you. I love it. Well, make sure the water level's low before I get in it, okay? <laughs> Don't worry about it. We're in a desert. We need all the water we can get. <laughs> all right. Ralph Sirocco of Race Day Las Vegas. We got to get him on more often, man. I uh, want to thank Ralph for taking time. And I uh, also want to uh, 
thank uh, Jennifer Kelly. Remember, her book is Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown. Uh, you can get it pretty much anywhere. It's a fantastic read with some classic historic photos. want to remind everybody, come on over to Winning Ponies. Pull down the easy win forms. Add some big hits everywhere. We're talking Pimlico, Penn National, Gulfstream Park, Churchill Downs had a really good week with the easy win forms. So on behalf of my guest and my producer, who's Josh by gosh, I tested him tonight. Um, I'm John Engelhart. You're listening to Winning Ponies. And when you go to the races, bet with your head, not over it. Thanks for listening to Winning Ponies with John Engelhart. We know the information from today's show will help you at the next post. Keep listening for more next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network.